Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. You may be able to hear some seagulls in the background. That's because I'm standing by the, the Gulf of Finland. Um, I caught COVID. It was really horrible. Best avoided, obviously. Um, but I think I'm going to live. And uh, I'm glad uh, for many reasons. Um, and not to trivialize it, I've, I've been looking forward to this uh, particular conversation with Max Winograd, who runs the... Atma IO team. Uh, it's a startup within a Fortune 500 company uh, at Avery Dennison. And um, the serialization is really a, a critical um, thing in terms of uh, what many of us do in IoT, but it, it's a huge strategic applications area. Uh, it's like the ERP system of the future. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting companies playing in that space. So we get to talk with Max, who's a co-founder. He's going to tell us the history of how, how it was formed, what it does, dispel a lot of the um, jargon and myths. You'll get an understanding of the boundaries of what serialization platforms do, what they plug into, what some of the use cases are, what some of the customers are that uh, are using it. As well, of course, as a bit about Max and his taste in music. So, enjoy. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot, intelligence for everyday things, powered by IoT Pixels. Well, thanks for doing the, the podcast. It's surprising that it's taken us this long to, uh, to do this, but I'm, I'm glad we are. Likewise, Steve. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I was wondering whether I was going to be alive. I've, I've got COVID and I'm stuck in a hotel room in Helsinki. And it turns out this is where the Helsinki Accords were signed. Anyway, I, I wanted to uh, um, have this conversation with you because um, I, I think... Um, I think it's super interesting what you're doing, and and I wanted to talk about uh, a handful of things. One was uh, you're the co-founder and the chief executive of Atma, so I, I, Atma's doing some really cool things. So I wanted to explore that. Uh, one of the cool things about Atma is it's a startup, but it's part of a Fortune 500 company, and I wanted to explore a bit about what that means and. Obviously, there's some advantages, but there's also some challenges. So I wanted to talk to you about that. You're doing, uh, you've got a big focus on sustainability, circularity, the work you're doing with uh, Adidas and um, carbon accounting. I wanted to get into that. And then lastly, I, uh, for our Easter egg section at the end, then I wanted to talk a bit about you. So sound okay? 
Sounds good. Okay. So what is Atma? Tell us, tell us what Atma is. So uh, usually when I talk about what Atma is, I always start with what Atma means, the word itself. Yeah, that would be great. Because so, so, usually people are wondering if it's an acronym or what it stands for. Atma yeah. is a Sanskrit word for soul, S-O-U-L. And we have this belief at Avery Dennison that in the future, every physical item will have a unique digital identity and digital life. And if you think about what a digital identity is in relation to a physical product, it is its soul. And that's because it's something that can be given at the point that that product is created, but then exists throughout all the changes a product goes through, through its journey, through a supply chain, while it's being used by a consumer, and while that product then goes through end of life or onto its second life. And there's this one common thread that persists throughout a product's life and its second life and so on and so forth. And that is its unique digital identity or its soul. And, and regardless of whether it's part of a case, whether it's part of something that gets made together with lots of different inputs and ingredients, you can find this one persistent thing. And that's really where the concept of Atma began is let's create a soul for each product and then make that information about a product soul available to everyone in the, in the entire supply chain, consumers, suppliers, retailers, regulators, so that we can really unlock the potential and power of connected products and really turn products from being these things that are the creators of waste today to being the enablers for sustainability tomorrow. That's brilliant. Um, how much of that was a post-rationalization of a name you chose, and how much of it did you think of up front? That's just incredible. The, the, the kind of having a soul that's a point of continuity um, as you have a second life. I'd never really thought about that. I'd, you told me about the Sanskrit thing when you formed the company, but I didn't know about the second life. I hadn't thought through the second life things. Yeah, it, it, I, I cannot take credit for it. So it was actually one of my colleagues, Pretty Buyer, who uh, has been uh, someone who's been very helpful in, in helping to kickstart the the Atmayo journey. Um, so Pradeep actually gave us the the name of of Atma, helped us understand really all the implications of the word, and then as you started to peel the layers of what that could potentially mean in relation to a product, it started to really click as something that could really be that true self of the product because. You're dealing with fakes and counterfeits, right? You're dealing with so many other things that are happening to a product that could yeah. to the state of it physically, but then you need to have something that's still its true self, its real identity throughout this entire process. And so it really does it really does fit. And the idea that, you know, after end of life it can persist again because you want to track where did the product end up or how did it get remade into something new and because it, it, a product itself, its raw materials could be reincarnated to so many other things. And if you think about upcycling and so on and so forth. That's so cool. So is he one of the co-founders? Because you're a co-founder. Who are the other founders? Yes. So the other, we have two other technical co-founders, uh, Michael Goler and Mario Katasic, who jumped on to the Atmaya rocket ship back in, in October of 2019 when we first started, um, kicking this off as a new initiative within Avery Dennison and specifically within Avery Dennison Smart Track, which is the division that's been pioneering what we call intelligent labels and looking to really expand upon that from not just intelligent labels like your RFID, um, NFC, or even BLE technologies, like helping to commercialize um, Williot uh, battery-free Bluetooth, but also into digital identification technologies more broadly. So it's not just the physical trigger that might go onto a product to help identify it, but also helping to manage all of the data and information that gets generated by a product as it goes to the supply chain. So it's this wonderful combination 
really helping to bridge the physical and digital worlds together. And very much in the same spirit that we see with, with Williot and what we're enabling together with uh, battery-free Bluetooth and intelligent sensing. So what's the founding story? I mean, the, the Atma story, the naming story is amazing. But um, I mean, when I first met you, you were doing due diligence on Williot as the the lead on um, Avery Dennison's uh, um, venture arm. And um, how did you get from that to to uh, heading up Atma? It's a great question, Steve. Uh, maybe I'll start back to the beginning of the career because it was it was sort of a boomerang in, in, in one in one respect. So the first part is right out of school, I started my first company. So started a startup company with two co-founders, technical co-founders. We were looking to pioneer um, sustainable materials for packaging. And we built this business over eight years, raising venture capital and strategic investment, and ultimately sold the company to Altana, a 2 billion euro German coatings and ink conglomerate. And at the time, I was looking at new opportunities um, and thinking about new projects to start. And Avery Dennison came calling with a really unique opportunity, which was to help stand up their corporate venture capital fund or their CVC at a point where they were really thinking about how do we disrupt ourselves? And the idea that innovation is broader than what happens within internal R&D, but also much about external focus and really thinking what's happening in the ecosystem where we can invest and partner with entrepreneurs, new technologies, access new business models, new markets, and really look at how to expand how we're innovating as an organization. So I jumped at the opportunity to, um, to join the company and help start this corporate venturing journey with the team. We then built a great team of investors and other partners in the ecosystem and about a, less than a year into my time at Avery Dennison, I found myself in Israel, sitting across the, the table from Tall and, and the rest of the founding team at Williot at just a really unique time for us as we're thinking about as Avery Dennison, that vision where every physical item will have a unique digital identity and digital life. Now, that digital life, if all you know is the identity of the product, that's not a very long biography of the product's uh, life, if you will, right? If you think about all the other details and information you can get from it by sensing different attributes and conditions throughout the product's journey, then you have a much richer set of data that you can act on as a supply chain, as consumers, as brands, to really operate in a much more connected and sustainable way and really drive traceability as well as richer consumer encounters. And so it was with that that we had an opportunity to first join and, and, and partner with the Williot team and also some great Williot investors as well. And shortly thereafter, the boomerang came back. So I was I went from being a builder as an entrepreneur with my own startup to then being a buyer or an investor, if you will, with a CVC fund. But then in, in 2019, we were looking around the ecosystem and we were thinking about the role that we need to play in helping to enable that vision of every item having unique digital identity and digital life. And we saw a unique opportunity to stand up our own platform, which became the Atmio Connected Product Cloud to help manage all of that product data that comes together from all those different sources of information, whether it's existing systems like an ERP and things like that, to the actual on-product triggers, whether it's BLE that's sensing information about the product or RFID sensing its, its existence in inventory um, or NFC and others that are using it to authenticate the product. And all that data coming together in one place that's easily accessible and can really drive more sustainable outcomes with more data that's then turned into better information. Um, and so really the, 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 the circle got complete when I had the opportunity to then go back and actually set up a startup, but actually do it within Avery Dennison and leverage this global footprint that Avery Dennison has serving as the market leader for UHF RFID 
really understanding what drove adoption in segments like apparel and retail, where we're seeing a lot of activity already over the last several years with RFID and seeing how that opens up in new segments. So let's leverage that knowledge, that the, the access as well to customers that are really trying to transform their supply chains. And together, let's co-create technology and new products that ultimately will help achieve those objectives, right? They're all looking to drive better sales lift. They're looking to drive better profitability throughout their supply chain. They're seeing such disruption these days um, in their supply chains that the better ways that they can tame it with more information about how to operate more efficiently is tremendous. And then most importantly, is really helping to drive those sustainability outcomes. So understanding what their actual carbon footprint is for a product and for their entire supply chain, giving them the tools to actually start to do stuff about that as well. And that's really how the kind of full circle went to and back in the venturing world um, and actually standing up a startup. But as you pointed out, it's really a unique opportunity to do so inside of a Fortune 500 and alongside really the, the collective value that you can get by having the types of channel access and market insights that Avery Dennison can provide. So Avery Dennison, when you first came to it, was the leader in the smart labels business, uh, uh, RFID and NFC and uh, so forth. But that's sort of a moment in time. You buy the label, that's it. And you don't really get to be part of the product's journey. With Atma IO, then you, you are there. You have uh, a much, much more continuity. And I guess it's, it's a very different business model, though, isn't it? On one hand, you, you're kind of selling materials. And then on the other hand, you have a recurring uh, revenue stream. Um, I guess it's actually a really good business model to get into your valuation uh, uh, as a company goes up if it becomes a significant part of the, of the business. Whose idea was it to do this? I don't think we can trace it to any one person whose idea it was, but I will say that in 2019, we had sort of going around over email and, and text was this hashtag, hashtag just build it. Um, so this idea that this isn't something that we can outsource um, to consultants to build for us. This isn't something that we can just go and find the perfect company that's working in the space. It's such a new field. And there's so much work that needs to be done to really build a platform and an ecosystem around digital identification and around connected products that we saw a unique role that we could continue to play, to your point, really pushing um, our capabilities into the software and the digital realm while looking into new revenue streams that really can kind of help capture all the value that can be created if you actually think of providing the full package of what can connect the product, the physical trigger, and also then the data management um, as well. So seeing those things come together is a tremendous amount of value creation being created. And so it also changes how we think about how do we capture value. And it does create opportunity for new things like SaaS business models, as well as you know, service or outcome-driven business models as well, which also helps align our incentives um, and between supplier of technology and user of technology, where we're really in a position to actually help them unlock the value. And as long as they're unlocking more and more value, that's how we can also capture more value. And you decided to build it from scratch. I mean, you had some opportunities to uh, acquire. I mean, Avery Dennison bought SmartTrack and they had, I think it was Smart Cosmos or something like that. That they. Uh, so you could have bought that, I guess. Why did you decide to build it from scratch? 
we made the decision. So we had a team that actually looked out and evaluating all what was out there in the marketplace today in a way to really understand what does that landscape look like for potential partners that we could work with. And when we made the conclusion of hashtag just build it, it was really based on the fact that we saw that there was a real gap in the market from a technological perspective, but even just a true implementation perspective. At the end of the day, these supply chains are incredibly complicated, global, and really relying on several different stakeholders coming together to truly make that digital transformation of that supply chain happen. And to really do that, it's not just about having a nice piece of software, which is a key part of it, but that's not the only part. It's really being able to be that end-to-end solution provider and solution delivery capability to be able to turn on 360 suppliers for a global retailer for food and apparel, while at the same time turning on all the different manufacturing locations for a global apparel brand, all of their distribution centers, all of their stores. And before you know it, you have 6,000 sites in scope that you need to actually have some way to capture data from scanning barcodes or RFID or other types of digital triggers and being able to use those individual data points as part of this much bigger data picture you're trying to create. But it requires, because at the end of the day, we're still connecting physical products. There still is that need to be in the store, in the DC, in the supply chain, at the factories and the raw material suppliers, helping them actually implement the technology in a way that can drive these outcomes. Because up until you got the data in the platform or you got the data coming off of these products, you're not actually enabling that value creation part. So there's a huge emphasis for brands really to help them figure out how to get started. And so many of them are so early in the journey. There's a stat I'll I'll end with, Steve, which is that there was a study done by Bain that looked at where traceability programs are for major brands and retailers. And of 150 different respondents, 58% of them said that they were either at the thinking about what to do stage. So really like sitting there with like a blank sheet of paper, some initial ideas, but nothing concrete to doing proof of concepts and proof of value demonstrations. So not even at the word pilot yet, 58% of these respondents are still really just figuring out how to get started with these programs. So we saw this mix of sort of gap in the marketplace in terms of product capability and delivery capability, and then just a thirst and a need for help getting started. So getting people on that adoption ramp towards traceability, because so many of those in the marketplace still don't necessarily know where to start or where to start relative to the value they can capture once they have everything connected and digital identities and souls for all of their products. So much that we can talk about here, but uh, there's a few things, I, many things I want to get to. Uh, we should probably just clarify a bit about more about what the platform is and what it isn't. Um, can you kind of paint a, uh, a verbal architecture diagram so that we can understand what the boundaries are of what you do and don't do? That's a good question, Steve. So Atmaio at its core is a connected product cloud. So think of it as the single platform where you can store and manage all of the data related to a product at the item level. And item level is an important operative term in that description because you have lots of systems that are already out there that are doing a lot of management at the SKU level or the order level or the PO level, where they're managing things like in an ERP, all the attributes of a product, or in your WMS system, helping to link the actual order fulfillment that's so happening. It's warehouse management, right? Exactly. So ERP, exactly. you're a 
account sort of broadly accounting system and uh, WMS. Okay, so yes, thank you, you don't thank do you for bringing me out of the alphabet suit of of, yeah. of supply chain IT and infrastructure, um, Steve. Yeah, we what we're doing is connecting to existing systems that are managing data at the SKU level. So yeah, another way to visualize that um, pun intended is you think about an eye chart when you're going to the eye doctor. Mm-hmm. SKU level is that big letter E at the top of the eye exam chart where it's really big and usually you're able to see it if you've got the right you know, vision on. Um, then when you bring it down to the smallest letters in the chart at the very bottom, that's at the finest um, font size, you can't read that as a supply chain today because you don't have item level visibility. You're only able to see that big letter E up top. And so we're adding a new lens onto the supply chain with item level visibility and with our platform. And we can serve as an item level system of record. And the reason why that matters is, let's say, see, we're both wearing black polo shirts right now. That black polo shirt um, may be of the exact same skew. We might both be a size large, bought it from the same brand in the same season. However, we live in different places. Um, we're going to use the product differently. We may decide to give a product a second life or not, depending on what we're, where the product is in its life cycle and whether it can be you know, given uh, another life by being recycled or turned into something else. Once you go to the individual journey of a product diverging, that's where item level becomes so important and so critical. And the idea of having an item level platform is really what's needed to unlock some of these sustainability use cases, um, the ability to authenticate products. All those things need to happen not at the SKU level, but actually at the individual item level. And that ultimately creates the opportunity for the most unique consumer interactions as well, where item level can help create the picture. I'm communicating with Steve, not with just the owner of black T-shirt size large. Um, now, so Atma's role in that is ultimately capturing all of the data that gets generated through the product's journey at the item level. So what that means is the creation of that unique digital identity at the start of the product's life cycle, usually when it's being produced, is essentially that first snowflake and a snowball of data. Then we would connect to systems. So like that ERP system that's helping to capture product attribute information, like the color, the size, its global trade identification number or G10. All that information can then be pulled into Atma and associated with that unique ID we created for that specific item. And then every time the product is interacted with or scanned, scanning a QR code, reading the RFID tag attached to it, or sensing the BLE sticker that might be on the product as well, all of those read events are creating moments where you can capture more data and assign that data event to the product and that's unique digital identity. So for example, product was made, it was then shipped, it was received, it was packed in a case, that case was then shipped and received, it was then inspected, it was then sold. All of those individual steps are happening at the item level and then that data all gets captured in Atmio. And then we can push that information to other systems that might be looking for information about analytics of their product, supply chain, of their inventory availability, figuring out where there are anomalies and things like that. So we're basically a, a, a source of ingesting data um, as well as connecting data. And then we're able to also then share that data as it gets, I think, a little bit more refined into information back out to various systems, whether they're using business intelligence tools like a Power BI or other things where they're helping to get just data from various sources. We can be a, a data source in that sense. And then we can also help really try to take all the information that we're capturing and make sense of it as well ourselves and be able to identify, okay, here's what's actually happening in the supply chain that are probably your top three or four biggest problems that you might want to pay attention to while you're seeing millions and billions of pings on a map at any one point in time in a global supply chain. So huge database. You've got uh, the birth certificate, the the VIN number, the license plate, the, this unique identity, 
you're accumulating lots of information about you know the biography of this soul as it goes through uh, uh, the manufacturing process, the distribution process, the sales, the ownership, uh, maybe a, a second life. But it's not just data in, it's also data out. So you, you're bringing connectors to all of these different enterprise systems. Uh, I guess that will get bigger and bigger as uh, time goes on. But it sounds like there's also applications as well. So it's not just middleware, you're actually delivering apps. Is that true? It's a good mixture of both applications that we're delivering as well as applications that we connect to that we partner with in the ecosystem. Is it and more the latter? You're more kind of a, a platform by, by, that apps sit on? Yeah, by volume, it's definitely more the latter. So in terms of the number of applications that we've created ourselves versus the breadth of this sort of app store, if you will, of things that are connecting to Atma, whether there are other software applications being built by other divisions within Avery Dennison or by partners externally that have seen the opportunity to connect the data that they're generating from one part of the supply chain or one individual workflow into Atma as part of a bigger story. And so it helps make it easier to kind of maintain the connectivity between existing systems and ours by having that sort of app store type and, and sort of open uh, ecosystem approach. I, another way to think about it, Steve, is actually like the Apple app store, right? You've got on your phone, you can download the weather channel, weather bug, AccuWeather, tons of these different individual apps to tell you what the weather is. You also have the native Apple app that will also give you that information. And there's a few others that they've built, but then everything else is really built on this ecosystem of developers that have built technology that together connected to Atma can really unlock some additional business value for their customers and then also for our platform. And I won't ask you to give an, a number of apps because we're all conditioned to expect the number to be in the millions. And, and, and I'm sure it's, it, it's, it's uh, you know, this is a different ball game. This is enterprise apps and it's focused on a set of domains. But how is that going in terms of integrations with third-party applications, both information sources and, and the functional apps that sit on top? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Steve. And I'd say that it's, it's a mix in terms of what we're doing with these application partners of being able to enable essentially like a next layer of, of a particular use case. And I'll give an example of that in a second as well as being able to help drive potential connectivity into some of our other customers that we're supporting. So for example, when someone connects to us for one customer implementation, let's say that they're operating uh, retail software that then will connect data about the inventory in the store to Atmaio. Um, they'll do that for one of their existing customers that we both together are working with. However, by having that then existing integration already underway within our platform, that then can be a story that they can then tell to other customers of ours that are looking for other retail software solutions. And we can then say, well, we have already these native in integrated solutions alongside us that you can leverage. So we do that quite frequently because people are asking us if we're sitting in that center as that common backend platform for all of the supply chain data. What systems do you work with for the store or for the DC or for order fulfillment or for transportation or for, to your point earlier, with, with your systems for accounting purposes? So we can help kind of pull technology in to customers that we're already working with, as well as just make the value of whatever use case they're already using another technology solution for, we can augment that. Um, so going back to that example I mentioned I would, I would share, 
when we connect to, say, a retail inventory solution, the retail inventory solution is really focusing on driving the best profitability and sales lift opportunities with inventory accuracy at that location. So let's call it store for the purposes of this example. Well, by pulling in data that's happening throughout the rest of the supply chain together, the data is more than just the one plus one equals two. It has a much higher multiplication effect because now we can connect information coming from the factory or the DC to understand what's the true dwell time of a product end to end in the supply chain. Which factories are producing the products that generate the most returns in a retail environment? Uh, which products are most likely to be returned within a particular window of time based on either the dwell time or the carbon footprint of the product or some other data attribute that we can slice as a, as a screen or a filter? And so it's about really taking two systems together that are attacking a common problem, connecting them, and then being able to really overcome that problem for the customer together in a much more holistic and data-driven way. And can you give some examples of the apps that you've integrated with already? Yeah. So one example is we've we've done some integration work with um, some specific um, RFID software. Um, essentially, the, the customers were already using to generate data and RFID value in the stores. And so we connected that system to ours because we were getting data coming at source when the product's digital identity was being created and assigned in that first step. Um, and then we've also then enabled the connect with other DC software as well. So an example of that is a software solution actually built by another division within Avery Denison that's pioneering identification solutions in the food and logistics segments. And those solutions, uh, one is in the store that's called Zippium. That's really driving inventory management in uh, food service and food retail operations. And then also their solution in the distribution center, which is called case verification, which is really taking another point of data generation that can exist in an RFID-enabled supply chain and actually then doing that data um, capture in the distribution center and then using that as additional data sources to drive better traceability and item-level visibility for the entire supply chain that's utilizing that technology. So it's sort of expanding the value creation for RFID by then combining these different software solutions and then also then linking it different applications that are happening at the store to what's happening in the DC. And so if we take that food example, um, then what we're doing is really creating the opportunity to drive the most freshness for the customer as the end outcome, because we're understanding the inventory within the store, we're tracking dwell times in the DCs and better item level visibility and item level accuracy in the DC. So that that shift from being a first in first out supply chain can then become a first expiry first out supply chain. And that really becomes a very compelling story for consumers that are looking to ensure they're buying the freshest ingredients or the freshest food at a restaurant um, or a QSR, quick service restaurant. And this ultimately becomes the data solution, both application and backend platform to really unlock that, that freshness capability. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So the user interface into Atma, would, what would you say the split is between a user interface that your team are writing uh, versus a user interface from uh, another application? Um, it, it's probably about a 50-50 split, Steve. Um, I think that what we see is some of the larger enterprise customers have their own dashboarding and reporting systems where they're looking just to get lots of different data feeds into. And so in that sense, it might not be our interface. Or as another example, we may be connecting to a brand's already developed mobile application. And so they have their own mobile app. An example, Adidas, one of our customers for the last few years, they actually are are actually driving the user experience using their mobile app, but then Atma is a data source into that mobile app. And so you as a consumer may be scanning a QR code on a product to register it and give it a second life. And without knowing it, you're actually also connecting to Atma and actually leveraging that digital identity of that product to help drive the re-commerce of the product. But you won't necessarily see the Atma component. Um, and then we also, I think, have a lot of activity underway with um, where we actually are that common interface. So you can sort of access just like you're using with your phone with the App Store model. You can access one common portal and all the different front-end applications that you might see in your enterprise that you're leveraging a mix of internally developed applications as well as the third-party integrations that you've already done or are doing. So um, you touched on the uh, Adidas application, which I think I'd like to spend just a little bit more time on. Where is that at now in terms of its um, going from um, pilot to, uh, to, to scaling? Can I, as a user, download the Adidas app and, and know that some of my interaction is driving triggers into Atma or uh, what apps are you integrated with? So the, the integration with the Adidas mobile app is all around enabling the infinite play initiative, which is the ability to take an existing registered Adidas product and reselling it back to Adi. Uh, and in exchange as a consumer, you're given a voucher to then purchase additional product while giving you giving that product that you already sold or resold a second life. Um, and so that program initially started in the UK. Uh, and then last year, as part of their 2025 strategic plan, Adidas announced the global rollout that's going to occur over that strategic plan horizon. And the next markets have been North America. So Steve, um, uh, once you get back from Helsinki, you'll be able to um, to, to leverage the, the technology here in the U.S. Uh, and then they're looking at expanding that beyond into additional markets as well. Um, so right now, the U.S. is where Infinite Play is now since expanded to since we started. But we're also working across other initiatives, either in the supply chain, uh, facing to the factories or to consumers in other markets. And what we're seeing really is thousands upon thousands of, of individuals are actually interacting with products that are ultimately connected to the Atmio platform because we are fortunate to count on all of Adidas's items actually sitting in the Atmio platform. So we're talking about billions of products that are connected and consumers are every day, thousands upon thousands of them are actually interacting with these products, either to learn more about the product or to give it a second life, or they just see a code and they're curious, they want to scan it. 
all that's helping though to inform uh, Adidas as well as others that might be leveraging the platform sort of why are consumers interacting with products and what outcomes are being driven by those interactions, which can just make the consumer brand relationship become that much more strong and personalized just because you have so much more information that can drive you as a brand to understand what information is going to make my consumer more likely to come back and be loyal to me as a brand. And, and so starting with the sustainability initiative with re-commerce and infinite play is, I think, sort of goes hand in hand with, with that focus. But then also it's really driving a tremendous amount of interest that consumers are having around certain products and around certain information about those products. I'm beyond enthusiastic about that use case. I think it's just amazing. Uh, and uh, hats off that you've found a way to enable it. Um, the whole idea of giving clothing back when it no longer fits you or you're bored of it or whatever, getting some value uh, and being able to turn it into something else. I think it's a massive, massive idea. And it's so much better than keeping all these things in your closet. I mean... So many of us have closets and shoe lockers that are just bulging with stuff. And the idea of being able to give that back so that someone else gets some benefit is just really, really good. But it's a non-trivial thing. But I think it's a great model. And I, and I can't wait to get back to the States for many reasons. But you've <laughs> just added that to my list as I have some uh, prized, beloved Adidas sneakers that I think I need to replace. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to use the, your, uh, your system to do it. So you've kind of hinted at some pretty big numbers. I can only imagine it's going to get stratospheric, but where are you at the moment? Uh, in t are there some stats that you can give us in terms of uh, products that you're managing and that sort of thing? Absolutely, Steve. It's a great question. So we've now got over 22 billion products that are on the Atmio platform that are connected. Um, so those are individual items. So that one, the, the pair of sneakers you're talking about, Steve, that would be one of the 22 billion, um, depending on how old the sneakers are, of course, because we go back a few <laughs> years with Adi, but not necessarily too far back. So hopefully they're, they're not too vintage. Well, actually, I got my first pair when I was visiting Adidas. I thought, I cannot show up at Adidas wearing Nike. So I bought them there. Yes, that's a good call. And, yes. <laughs> and, and then I bought another pair after that because I really liked them. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to keep on getting these. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, in, in addition to the, just the, the sheer number is, is also just the number of some of the, um, some of the large enterprise customers that we're working with. So we're working already with six of the top 20 apparel brands are using Atmaya and four of the top 10 QSRs are also using the platform. And so the quick serve restaurants and we're working closely across not just the apparel and food segments, but also many others. So actually, um, later this month, we're actually announcing a partnership in um, in the pharmaceuticals market, helping to enable um, item level asset tracking for critical assets um, like samples or test results or unique therapeutics and being able to then have a digital traceability platform through a partner. This is that app store model again, while also then being able to tap into a market where there is just a critical need for that level of visibility at every step of the supply chain. Well, let's talk a bit more about use cases and vertical markets then. So we've talked a bit about apparel. Um, you gave some amazing results on in terms of penetration of QSR, which is uh, an important part of the food market. It amazes me, given the FDA has been banging away about modernization and traceability 
how far behind we are, given the stat that you, you, the Bain stat that you quoted, it seems like the FDA has been saying, hey, we can't throw away every leaf of lettuce when someone gets salmonella in one part of the country. And yet we're a long way from getting there. What, why do you think that is? Why? I mean, is that right? Is the food business really way behind in traceability? Um, and what does that mean? It's, it's a good question, Steve. And it's, it's, it's less about which segment is behind another segment um, in terms of rolling out traceability, but it's really just about just really unpacking the sheer complexity of the problem and the sheer complexity of the solution implementation. Um, if you think about food, you, let's start with the source. So you're, you're typically talking about a farm of some kind um, or a grower where they're actually kind of growing the, the raw materials or the individual ingredients or the food product before it then gets processed. So you're usually out somewhere in the field. It's not necessarily going to have the best Wi-Fi connection or the ability to have infrastructure to go out and actually individually tag every unique item, but you need to start somewhere. And so the idea of having some kind of lowest common denominator, whether it's the case or the lot or the crate or some the clamshell of produce, whatever that might be at the source as the point where you can actually initially create that unique digital identity and association with a product. And then to your point, capture all the different attribute information, its expiry date, um, things like that nature that can then be attached to the product. And then as that product goes through the process of being produced and generated into a finished good that's sold either in a market or a store or in a restaurant, um, all of the data that follows that product can then be there. But now you're talking about different companies because usually you're not seeing a fully vertically integrated supply chain in most industries. And so as a result, you have to get the grower to want to install technology and leverage it. What's the value to them? That's different than the value that gets created for the restaurant or the retailer um, that also is looking for that information. Because if you think about that process of the recall and who that impacts, it's, it's not just one part of the supply chain, but ultimately is many different parts. And so to ultimately really enable traceability to, to exist, you have to get all the different owners of the supply chain to embrace the technology that's being used to generate information about the product, uh, as well as you then have within those companies themselves various functions that have different roles to play in rolling out connected products or doing an implementation or integration. So you may have the digital team sitting at the retail or the brand or the restaurant thinking, this is fantastic. I get all this information. I can then share with my consumer to share you know, personalized recipes or recommendations or new loyalty initiatives because I have much granular information about the products that they're buying and the consumer can maybe opt in for some of those, some of that data sharing. Well, that necessarily doesn't translate to someone in the supply chain that's thinking through, well, how do I now enable a new workflow of scanning a product and associating its attributes to a unique digital identity, which might take a change in my, my operations? And so you have to think about how you're creating value for all the different sort of functions within a business and then all the different businesses within a supply chain. And I think because there are so many initiatives that are underway currently that, that they're worried about, it ends up becoming a very complicated problem to try to tackle. And it doesn't necessarily always get tackled. And it's not necessarily until someone maybe gets burned or there's a specific supply chain disruption, whether it's a recall or a supply shortage of some kind that then triggers the need to then actually take action. We're also seeing regulation um, start to actually play a role. So the Food Safety Modernization Act um, is a new Rule 204 that's going to be 
um, laid out later this year. And that's going to have an impact on how we're keeping track of information on food supply chains to be better able to operate um, those food safety initiatives when those do get triggered, whether it's a recall or expiry of product, et cetera. But we see a tremendous amount of opportunity where the industry is asking for it. They need help in getting started because of the sheer complexity internally and throughout their supply chain. And we see pending regulation coming, so we're going to have to do it. And I think that combination is what's driving the activity right now. Um, and, and ultimately, we think we'll see in the next couple of years fully baked supply chains in the food industry where they have item level visibility. And it's going to help them understand the real magnitude of the waste that's being produced in the supply chain and also how to take action to reduce that waste and then operate in a safer mode because they're able to better react to recall situations and in a less wasteful way. So where is the momentum in food traceability? It, it sounds from what you were saying, it's in the QSR space, or, or, or are you also seeing um, big adoption in grocery with people wanting to be able to, um, you know, trace a tomato from the field to the store? I think we see it in all the different segments of the food market because there are some common themes. Um, it may just be different numbers or percentages, but there's some very common themes. Uh, one of them is there's a tremendous shortage of labor, um, whether it's in the restaurant or in a retail environment, where if we can, they're not going to suddenly change the headcount of their store. And in fact, many of these grocery brands and, and, and restaurants are actually hiring like crazy because of labor shortages. But it's more about how could we help them with better accuracy, shift what jobs that they're doing on a day-to-day basis to things that are more higher value add than restocking or inventory lookups and things of that nature, or helping to automate some back of store, back of kitchen operations. So there's a huge labor shortage across segments that we can help with item level visibility operate more efficiently, and that can help drive better outcomes for consumers. Then there's the element around uh, freshness, um, where there's a hunger to be with your inventory to drive fresh food as quickly as possible into the hands of the consumer. And, and not just as fast as possible, but as efficiently as possible so that you're not creating excess of, of, of perishable food to the supply chain that ultimately has to get disposed of or donated. And, and ultimately what we're enabling is better visibility, understand what products are where in the supply chain that then need to move because they're close to expiry or because we understand what it, how long it takes them to get to the end market where they're being sold or used in a restaurant or in a retail environment. So I think the common themes around reducing waste, optimizing labor um, persist across. And so I think we're seeing it happen in both in both areas. And the last point I'll just share is that the the true quantity of waste is just now getting understood by many of these um, um, different brands because they're starting to see kind of how the waste adds up once they get that item level visibility. And they maybe had some top down numbers um before they were trying to do baselines around waste, but now they're getting much more granular information to see how, how much waste there truly is. And so far we're actually finding, and so it's not because of one retailer is doing operations one way or the other, that we're actually finding that everyone is underestimating the amount of waste that they create in their supply chain. Everyone does, um, which is, you know, as, as a citizen of the world and stuff, it's, it's scary to think about, but at the same time, it's as someone that's helping to drive a, a team of building technology to drive towards a more sustainable world, it's actually a great. It's a great opportunity, right? Glass half full. It's huge yeah. opportunity to yeah. for, on climate change. Huge, huge opportunity to save on cost. And uh, so, I mean, the estimates on waste were already pretty big. So, do, do you want to share any numbers, or is it just too embarrassing to, to put out there? 
I'll, I'll give an anecdote with, with, with just some relative degree of, 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 of how different the problem was, where there is an estimate that was off by a factor of more than 7x of, oh of waste in the supply chain, where they thought it was a number, and it was actually more than 7x, almost 8x that number, um, oh which, which is, again, it's good that we've actually learned that there's a much greater problem, and it's good that there's now an even bigger opportunity than before to have an impact, but it also is telling that we don't necessarily know the full extent of, of the information or of the problem until we truly have accurate information about the problem um, that really needs to have a level of visibility and, and uh, that we need at the item level, if you will. So if you're just tracking overall orders, it's, it's might be easier to see things slip through the cracks. But if you bring it down to the item level, that lowest line on the eye chart, um, then you can really get to a low visibility engine. This is the actual problem I have now, not the one I thought I had. And it turns out it might be bigger. And yeah. it might be eight times bigger. <laughs> what we see as well when you start to actually measure um, the movement of products around in real time. Um, so QSRs, you talked about big picture drivers, uh, probably many applications. But what is the? Is there a use case that's driving you know the, the lead pin for for QSRs to get going? Where are they starting? What What are you working on? Um, the, the start there is really around the inventory. And QSR is a quick service restaurant, right? It's yes, fast yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Um, so um, the, the big focus has been around that inventory accuracy and, and inventory management. So in the, being a, in the restaurant, starting first in the restaurant, but then because we need to also understand information about the product at the source, we're kind of attacking the problem from both ends. So the end of the supply chain and at the beginning of the supply chain, and then working to try to get the information captured every step of the way. Um, and so what that means is we're working with the growers to generate the unique identities for products when the products are being first produced or, or grown and, and processed, as well as then ensuring that there's technology in the stores, in those restaurant locations that can actually be used to generate more information about the products in that environment. Um, well, how often they're being used and how often or, you know, sort of inventory turns are happening. And that information um, together with the, the product data that we got at the source really unlocks the item level visibility that they didn't have necessarily before or a lot level or case level visibility. And what are the bad things that happen in QSR when inventory accuracy is off? I mean, I understand in like uh, supermarkets, you've got out of stock, which means you're, you know, you can't sell something. Someone's disappointed. But what happens in a fast food place? Uh, you know, a big thing is going to be waste at the end of the day, Steve. So you have a, you, you'll have a waste problem where you see waste in the supply chain being triggered by the fact that you've got a tremendous amount of, of inventory that has to move to lots of different locations. So you might have, you know, tens of thousands of stores that are being serviced with product that does have an expiration date, the most part of with perishable items. And, and so you may end up with too much inventory, too little inventory. Um, and you may not have you know, the right amount of cheese to go with the buns, to go with the burgers, to then actually create you meet the cheeseburger demand. And so there's different products that might be available or, or not, depending on that level of inventory accuracy. And ultimately, though, there's a waste element that they're trying to solve for so that they're not sending too much product to the wrong places. And then the product can't be used and it has to be either donated or disposed of, um, as well as making sure that they're providing fresh product to their consumer, whether it's in the store environment or in a restaurant, there's still the same goal of happy customers and making sure they're given the freshest ingredients and the freshest food possible. 
Um, because if not, then you could end up with a situation that we've seen with some quick service restaurants where there have been foodborne illnesses. And ultimately, the quicker they could trace back where that problem came from, the quicker some of the fallout of those events are into the brand's equity, to customer perceptions. And so that's also, I think, a, a real reason why there's a big focus. So it's the, it's the waste from either overstock or the mismatch of, of certain items, as well as managing freshness, which ultimately can manage the consumer relationship, the brand equity to prevent you know, things like foodborne illness outbreaks from happening at too vast within a, a particular restaurant footprint. So last business topic, um, the whole carbon footprint measurement piece, you guys uh, made some announcements about that, and I was really intrigued. How can you assess the carbon footprint of a product and you know, what are the related applications that you're, you're seeing there? That's a great question, Steve. There's a, a couple big elements about carbon footprint tracking that are important. Um, so the first is what you start with, which is the information about the assumptions of that product. So usually these are done through what's called a life cycle assessment or an LCA. And those life cycle assessments are using a combination of real-time data that's being generated by whoever's commissioning the LCA for that particular product, as well as model information that might be known as like industry averages or global averages um, to help try to get to as accurately as possible what the carbon footprint is for a product. A lot of times the carbon footprint for a product is determined at the SKU level. So going back to that black polo shirt, um, even though they may have been produced in different factories, sold in different days, through a different journey of supply chain, oftentimes the product carbon footprint gets generated based on the same kind of model assumptions for that SKU. So it's this much fabric it's needed to produce this item. It's this type of fabric. And so you, the, the initial kind of emissions calculations are built on these assumptions at the SKU level. When you get down to trying to get to an accurate carbon footprint for a product, you then need item level because every product goes on a different journey um, to the point where, for example, the product that you're wearing might have traveled in a different sort of to a different store because we probably didn't buy our, our, our shirts at the same store at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and so even there, the actual carbon footprint of the products that we're wearing starts to vary. And then when you think about just the use of a product as a consumer, I may wash this product more often because I use it more often. And that itself is a higher carbon footprint for that product. That's known as its scope three emissions, sort of the additional kind of in-use um, kind of impact that a product may have. All of these, again, are then theoretical assumptions that we try to generate and try to average out. What we're trying to do is take some of those averages um, as a starting point, but then we try to build and improve on top of that by getting more accurate real-time information about the product's journey to then know, okay, well, this product, which started with a carbon footprint of what's called five kilograms of CO2 equivalents, then it traveled from point A to point B instead of from point A to point C. Therefore, it has a different carbon footprint. Now it's maybe at six instead of five versus one that went from A to C, which is now maybe seven because it was a farther distance or it traveled on a plane versus on a, on a train car. And all those different nuances of how a product makes its way to the consumer will drive differences in carbon footprint, but ultimately get with the data that we have in Atma combined with that information that already exists in the theoretical assessments or the LCAs, we can then actually get to an actual carbon footprint for a product that is much more real-time, much more item-specific. It may not be 100% the exact carbon footprint perfectly measured because the systems that are helping to generate that information are still being deployed and utilized, but it ultimately creates a tremendous opportunity to really improve the overall sophistication of the analysis, but then also help meet the demands of the consumer looking for more accurate information. 
that they really want to understand what is the impact of the products that they're buying and that they're using. And we want to be able to give them the information that they can take action with to know if product one is different than product two in terms of carbon footprint, maybe I'll, I'll buy the one that has a slightly lower impact. Or if I want to understand how, what is the carbon footprint of my wardrobe right now? Or what's the carbon footprint of my weekly grocery list? You know, that, that type of information, consumers are trying to understand more and more just the, that baseline data so they can then try to operate in a more sustainable way and reduce their overall footprint as individual human beings and consumers um, on the planet. So I have no doubt that there are consumers that really like the sound of this. Are there vendors that are motivated to actually do this? Uh, are you seeing uptake on on this this offering? Absolutely. Um, we just actually announced some of these new tools with our Spring 22 release, Steve. And we see a tremendous amount of interest coming from brands because there's either regulations that are coming that are asking them for more accurate information, uh, as well as there could be the consumer demands that you were talking about. But then also, if they're thinking about they have their own targets that they've already articulated either to Wall Street or to the broader ESG community, where they said, we're going to be net zero by 2050 or 2030 or 2040. Well, let's prove it. And eventually you're going to see more and more prove it coming from regulators and consumers, at which point then they need to have really robust and accurate information to back up their claims of how they've reduced their carbon footprint and how they're tracking towards those net zero targets. And we hope to be one of the solution providers in that ecosystem that come together to really make that data more accurate. And then ultimately the outcome more certain when it comes to achieving net zero targets. And just ESG, can you uh, unpack what that is? Um, it, it, it's the much broader um, lens of not just the, um, the carbon footprint, but it's really looking at the environmental social governance aspects of um, really how companies are citizens and stewards of the earth um, and, and, and sort of how they support all stakeholders. So it's not just touching the environmental impact, but also the impacts they're having on their people as well as how they actually operate and run their businesses in a way that's transparent and in a way that's consistent with best practices. And so you'll see um, sometimes in the news, you'll read about how certain ESG index might incorporate um, companies from sectors that are typically viewed as bad for the environment. Um, for example, um, energy oil companies may be on ESG indexes. That's also because there's a much broader context of what ESG entails. It's not just the environmental footprint. So they're not just looking for the companies that produce the greenest products in the world, but actually are maybe operating and governing themselves in a way that's consistent with best practices for corporate responsibility, um, regardless of second. And are you seeing more of a priority on ESG than maybe in the past? Because in the past, it yes. sort of seemed like this rather limp, uh, powerless uh, uh, window dressing, um, and that's, I, that I, I, see, I, think, I think it's a fair it's a fair point that there has been a huge evolution um, in how how companies approach ESG. Um, I think there's a realization that so many of us, so many of these companies actually produce stuff and they produce things. And if you think about, you know, we, we talk about growth as some of our goals, and we report to investors uh, as, as do many companies. Well. Ultimately, if you're creating more and more stuff, that's still creating more and more of an environmental impact because it takes energy to produce things, energy to consume things and sell things and supply things. How do we actually look at reducing that impact um, holistically and creating value so that there's still a, the stakeholders are still being taken care of while also ensuring that we're meeting our goals of reducing emissions and carbon footprint while potentially producing more things? 
So it's, it's a real challenge that the business community faces of growth, but growth in a responsible way that ultimately heads towards a future state where we have a livable planet that we can all uh, participate healthily in uh, as well. I think that it's definitely went from being a pure compliance topic, which was, I think, the case a couple of decades ago, to being seen as it's an enabler for business, that I can actually be more profitable by operating more sustainably, and my consumers are going to be more loyal to my brand because I'm making more responsible and environmentally conscious choices in how I operate my business. Love it. We got to wrap up, unfortunately, but before I let you go, I've got to ask you the the the, the toughest question, which is, uh, what are the three songs that you're going to take on your trip to Mars when we send you off in your uh, in the Avery Dennison uh, rocket that's uh, going to be uh, heading in that direction? All right, a, a, a great question, Steve. So I got I got a few, and it was hard to pick just three. And I assume that the trip's going to be long enough that we can add to the playlist over time as well, right? So. Um, I think I think so. The, the, the first one I've got to do because I'm not sure who else is in the rocket ship with me. Um, so I'm going to pick um, "Up on Cripple Creek" by the band as as one of my three. Um, it's one of my favorite songs. Song that was actually played at my wedding. So you know, it's one of those that'll remind me if my if my wife is home watching the the, the rocket feed and, and isn't on the ship with me. It can remind me about my family. Then we've got. Um, it's going to be all right um, by um, by PJ Morton. It's one of those songs where. Um, it's just got a great beat and a great rhythm that when he plays it live, sometimes the song will go on for 8, 10, 12 minutes with all these different kind of musicians coming in and improvising. It's so fast paced. I feel like it's one of those songs that would give you a speeding ticket if you're listening to it on the highway and, and sort of driving to the rhythm. So I think I could get to Mars faster if I was playing that song. And then lastly, I would have to go with a Miles Davis song. So I'm going to go with uh, So What from Kind of Blue. But really, I could feel a lot of different Miles numbers would really be great. I just imagining like one of the cooler settings for a jazz backdrop would be just like staring out yeah. into outer space as you're just like kind of going by. So it's like that perfect, like nighttime music and you're just seeing all the stars, and the planets on your trip to Mars. So that's, it's good. It's a little bit of an eclectic mix of, of, of songs here, but I think it'll be a, a, the music part for me is always really important on the road trip or the space trip for sure. Great choices. Awesome. Max, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed this and I'm going to send you back with just a mere six minutes of your time. But uh, I appreciate you spending, uh, you're super busy. Thanks for spending time with us. My pleasure, Steve. Really, really great to catch up and uh, feel better as well and hope to see you back stateside soon. Yeah, all the best. All right, cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, personally, it energized me out of this COVID fog. Um, lots to learn and uh, really interesting to get a sense of, of Max, who's uh, an incredible entrepreneur. Um, thank you so much for, for listening. Please join us next time. Stay safe. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time.
And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 